When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Monday morning always comes faster than we expect. Way too fast. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I said to Sarah in makeup this morning, I said, welcome to the best shift on earth. And I was shocked <laughs> because it's too early. <laughs> Amen. 3 a.m. wake up to start your week. I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm really glad to you're be here. here. With you, Poppy. Um, Caitlin is off. Today she'll be back a little bit later this week. We're lucky to have the brilliant and beautiful Sarah Seidner with us. So let's get started with five things to know this Monday, May 22nd. Ten days left. That's it. On the clock. And the debt ceiling negotiations are deadlocked. I'm sad to report. The president and the House Speaker set to meet just hours from now as the U.S. inches closer to default. The Republican 2024 field is expanding. Senator Tim Scott is expected to formally announce his White House bid today. Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to jump in a bit later this week. And a CNN exclusive, Paul Whelan, who in the U.S. says is wrongfully imprisoned in Russia, calls CNN from behind bars. His message, he's confident the wheels are turning towards his release. The man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students will appear in court today. That is Brian Koberger. He faces four counts of murder and one count of burglary. And we have liftoff. A SpaceX rocket commanded by a woman is set to dock at the International Space Station this morning. It's only the second private mission ever, but NASA hopes this is just the beginning. CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, here's where we begin this morning. President Biden overnight racing back to Washington for debt limit negotiations just hours from now. He is set to once again meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the White House. There's less than 10 days left now to reach a deal and prevent a catastrophic default. House Republicans are demanding huge spending cuts before the president left Japan. He told reporters the latest proposal from the Republicans was, quote, unacceptable. I can't guarantee that they wouldn't force a default by doing something outrageous. I can't guarantee that. I think there are some MAGA Republicans in the House who know the damage that it would do to the economy. And because I am president and presidents are responsible for everything, Biden would take the blame. And that's the one way to make sure Biden's not reelected. Biden McCarthy spoke while the president was flying home on Air Force One and McCarthy called that talk productive. 
We're covering all angles. Let's begin with Lauren Fox trapping, tracking developments on Capitol Hill and Arlette signs at the White House. Arlette, to you, the president cut his trip short, cut off two important legs of the trip so he could be in Washington for what is going to happen today. What do we expect? Well, Poppy, President Biden returned to Washington much the same way that he left it, without any clear resolution in sight to avert a default in as little as 10 days. But a bit later today, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will sit down for another high-stakes meeting, really highlighting the urgency of this moment. The two of them spoke on, by the phone uh, yesterday as the president traveled back on Air Force One, and that led to negotiators from both sides coming to the negotiating table last night on Capitol Hill. Uh, the two sides met for about two and a half hours. They look to work through some of the very vast differences that remain uh, when it comes to trying to reach a budget agreement. And one of those key sticking points has been around spending levels, as the White House wants to keep spending at the current year's levels, while Republicans want to see it cut back and reverted back to fiscal year 2022. But but the president uh, over the weekend really highlighted that he believes that the Republicans' proposals recently were, that were recently put forth over the weekend, uh, that they amount to extreme positions. And it is the White House's belief that Republicans need to uh, realize that this needs to be a bipartisan deal, which will require compromise and some movement from GOP positions. But bottom line here, uh, the president, Speaker McCarthy, are facing very serious time constraints. Yesterday, we heard Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen once again reaffirm that she believes the U.S. could default on its debts as early as June 1st, really highlighting the urgency, the fact that this is a very fast-moving situation, uh, and really that the leaders, that President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, need to act very quickly in order to avert a default. But for the time being, it still remains, uh, it still appears to be that the differences uh, are vast. Um, let's go to Lauren now. Uh, earlier, Poppy mentioned that McCarthy has a very narrow majority in the House. How does this impact his strategy as he goes into this meeting? I mean, we are at crunch time now. Yeah, Sarah, I mean, he just doesn't have the kind of negotiating room that he would have if he had a larger Republican majority. In the back of his mind has to be this reality that he is going to lose conservative votes if he actually makes a bipartisan deal with President Joe Biden. And that calculus, whether or not he is going to be willing to potentially put his speakership on the line for that deal, is something that is looming large in these negotiations. Also looming large is the reality that these two men have a very untested relationship. They really haven't spent that much one-on-one -on -one time together. They never spent that much time in the previous two years when Biden was president and uh, you had McCarthy, who was in the minority at that point. So there's a huge question mark right now whether or not their relationship really can get this deal over the finish line. Like Arlette mentioned, the negotiations over the weekend happened in fits and starts, with both sides trading back and forth proposals that the other side argued were unreasonable. I talked to one Republican last night who told me that they feel like right now this deal is just hanging by a thread. Whether or not they can actually find a way forward is a major question mark. And like you noted, time is running short. To move this through the House of Representatives would take several days, at least 72 hours for members to look at a plan and then vote on it. In the Senate, it could take even longer. Now, that's always possible that they could move more expeditiously. But as Kevin McCarthy 
McCarthy noted over the weekend he has been planning for potentially the Senate to need seven days. Maybe they need less than that. But that just gives you a sense of how short we are running on time. Mm. Wow. Seven days. So 10 minus seven is three. So that means, Lauren, they got three days to figure this out. Well, that's the big question right now. And I think that it's always possible things move much more quickly in the Senate when they need to. But McCarthy's been arguing he thought they might need a whole week. Thank you both. I can't believe you're doing math at this hour, but that's, I mean, that's really good. That's what we have Christine Romans here for. Thank goodness for her. <laughs> My deep sighs over here. Like, oh. I know. Um, you have been, you know, talking about this ad nauseum over and over and over again. But you said something that really sent shivers down my spine. You said that if we didn't pass the debt limit, that we would see our living standards go back in time. Yes. This is for every American. Yes. This is, this is incredibly dangerous, what's happening here right now and how close we're getting. We have $56 billion in the bank this morning, uh, and we have a bunch of bills that are going to be coming due next month. There'll be money coming in from, you know, state tax receipts and the like, but to be playing it this close is just really, really dangerous for the American economy. So what do I mean about living standards going back in time? You could have a tenth of economic activity just stop the minute that they, that they do this. Tenth of, so you have the Treasury Department that'll be having a hunger games of sorts of which bills to pay. So you're talking about IOUs for service members. That's one option. You could have uh, delays in Social Security checks. So think about the senior who relies on the Social Security check, who then can't go to the bodega to buy the milk and the bread for the week, who then the bodega then doesn't have that income. I mean, it just starts to all go down uh, the food chain and it's very dangerous. To say nothing of what it means for financial security. Remember, the entire global financial system is built on the American treasury bond. And this is something that the world hungers for. They go, they buy as safety our bonds. It's not a sign of weakness, everybody. It's a sign of strength that the American, uh, this security is so sought after around the world. You start to undermine the underpinning of that. You hurt the dollar. Instability in the dollar is very good for America's competitors like China. I mean, the whole thing is just a real hot mess. There, our former colleague, uh, Lydia DeFillis, who's now at the yeah. New York Times, I thought wrote a great piece over the weekend about, you know, essentially you're talking about our creditors. Right. And if they see us default on our payments to our service mm-hmm. members, elderly Americans on Social Security, they've got to be thinking yeah. we are next and so that upends the whole system of the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and, yeah. that, and that the dollar should be the reserve currency, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's how that plays into China's hands or plays into, you know, the hands of uh, competitors who would like to see a world that's not based on the dollar where the U.S. Treasury isn't, isn't the king of the hill. And it is the king of the hill, you know. Uh, look, the U.S. will pay interest on its debt, I'm sure. I mean, debt holders, I mean, that would just be devastating if they defaulted on those obligations. But to do that, you have to make big cuts and sacrifices uh, elsewhere that just is a sign of weakness, a sign of poor planning. Look, there is a serious discussion about America's national debt growing so large that it chokes our country in the decades in the future. That serious conversation is not had around a debt ceiling drama. It's had serious bipartisan discussions in the budgeting process. So we're not doing that right now. And I think that there are some Republicans and there are some Democrats who think that that's what we're having a conversation. We're having a conversation about spending priorities. This is money that's already been spent, right? right? The spending priority conversation has to happen in a much more meaningful way than this. This is distraction. This is not discipline. This is distraction. This is drama. This is not discipline, what you're seeing here. I am old enough to remember the deficit clock 
ticking down. We were in front of it this weekend. I went, I went this weekend too. I saw a show in, on Broadway and uh, on, in the theater district. They have it there and it's just stuck right at 31.4 oh. trillion. <laughs> but you're right. I remember when it was going yep. down too. Yeah. Now it's stuck at 31.4 trillion and it needs to be raised or all of us are going to have, all of us are going to feel it, you know, oh, either in your stock investments or your senior and citizens. Students, Pell Grant, right, so much. Everything. All thank of it. You. Yep. Kristen Romans, thank you so much. So this morning, the Russian mercenary Wagner Group is claiming to have fully captured Ukraine's Bakhmut after the longest and bloodiest battle of this war in Ukraine. Ukraine's President Zelensky is denying those claims by the Wagner Group. Speaking at the G7 summit, Zelensky said Russia has destroyed almost all of the eastern city, though. Mr. President, President Zelensky, is Bakhmut still in Ukraine's hands? The Russians say they've taken Bakhmut. I think no, but you have to, to understand that there is nothing. They destroyed everything, there are no buildings. It's a pity, it's tragedy, but for, for today, Bakhmut is only in our hearts. CNN's Claire Sebastian joins us live in London with more really stirring words there. Bakhmut is only in our, in our hearts. And we were looking last week at these drone aerial images side by side of what it was a year ago and what it is now and complete devastation. Do we know, is Bakhmut captured by the Russians? Yeah, Bobby, it's really murky because, of course, we've got the Ukrainian side of the story, the Russian side, and then in the mix also Wagner. So a lot of competing versions of events. What we know as of this morning from the Russian side, a Russian-backed official in the region is saying that they have started demining operations in the city, clearly trying to make a show of some kind of post-liberation cleanup there. The Wagner chief, Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, is saying that they are putting up defense, sort of defense lines on the western edge of the city, and he is preparing to leave, he says, with his forces uh, starting on Thursday. Perhaps that another challenge to the Russian Ministry of Defense, that infighting that we've seen in recent weeks. As for the Ukrainian side, we've just had an update from the Deputy Defense Minister with a completely different version, as we've seen. She says uh, that fighting continues, Ukraine continues to advance, albeit at a lower intensity, on the flanks. We know that some of the gains they've made recently, most of them, in fact, have been on the northwest and the southwest of the city, perhaps an attempt to try to encircle uh, that city. And she also said that they retain control of certain industrial facilities and private houses, although Ukrainian officials do acknowledge that any land they control within the town itself is extremely limited. We've known that now for several weeks. So look, clearly this has huge propaganda value for Russia. We've seen that flag shot multiple times on state media. Ukraine likely unwilling to hand them that propaganda victory. Right. And not, not as much strategically critical, but certainly uh, it, it's, it's a huge win propaganda-wise, as you said, for, for Russia, mm -hmm. if that's the case. Claire, we appreciate your reporting from London. Thank you. Ahead, another Republican is set to officially announce he's challenging Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. And he already has some big name endorsements. Also, Paul Whelan calling CNN from inside the Russian prison camp where he's being held. What he said in that exclusive interview, that's ahead. I feel that my life shouldn't be considered less valuable or important than others who have been uh, previously traded. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Just hours from now, we're expecting another GOP candidate to officially jump into the 2024 presidential race. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott's team is teasing a major announcement today at Charleston Southern University. He filed the official paperwork to run on Friday. He's been testing the waters for months now, hitting early voting states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and his home state of South Carolina. CNN's Eva McCann is live in Charleston this morning. Eva, Nikki Haley, also hailing from South Carolina. Now Scott, look like he's going to enter the race, which means two Republicans from South Carolina battling it out. What do you expect to hear today? Yeah, Sarah, senior campaign officials tell us that hallmarks of Senator Scott's campaign will be faith and optimism. He has spent the past several weeks speaking to voters in the critical states of Iowa and New Hampshire, and he has now returned to his hometown of South Carolina to formally launch his bid for the White House. He's the only black Republican in the United States Senate. The story of America is not defined by our original sin. The story of America is defined by our redemption. South Carolina's Tim Scott now has his sights set on the White House. Leaning on his compelling personal story and conservative policy credentials, Scott joins a growing Republican primary field, currently led by former President Donald Trump. When you adhere to the principles in the gospel, human flourishing cannot be stopped, period. Advisors say Scott will make his faith a cornerstone of his presidential campaign. See, I was raised by a single mother in poverty. The spoons in our apartment were plastic, not silver. But we had faith. We put in the work and we had an unwavering belief that we too could live the American dream. First elected to Congress in 2010, Scott was appointed to the Senate in 2012 by then-Governor Nikki Haley, who launched her own presidential bid in February. I think fresh faces and authenticity goes a long way in the political process. So far, Scott is sticking to the message of hope over hostility that has defined his career. I'm looking forward to optimistic, positive leadership that is anchored in conservative principles. Back at the senator's home church near Charleston, there are hundreds of worshipers that see him most weekends. He has a commitment to be in church 40 weekends out of the year. Including his longtime pastor and friend, Greg Surratt. I think a misconception that people might have about him is that his niceness, his humility, Uh, translates as weakness. And uh, they don't know the Tim Scott that I know. Uh, I would like to, I I like to kind of see it as uh, an iron fist and a velvet glove. Did he talk to you about running for president? Sure. And did you give him any advice? I said, as an American citizen, I would be excited to see Tim Scott as President of the United States. As your friend, I can't think of a reason why you'd want that job. (laughs) And so that was my advice to him. 
So, Senator Scott did have an early stumble out of the gate, and that is on this question of abortion, uh, not committing to a, a federal uh, abortion ban or not uh, giving a clear answer to that question. Curious to see how he addresses this in his formal launch. This is going to be a central issue in this Republican primary. Sarah. All right. Eva McKen, thank you so much there from Charleston, South Carolina. Great reporting from Eva. Let's talk more about this now with CNN senior political analyst John Avalon and national political correspondent for The New York Times, Shane Goldmarker. Good morning, guys. Morning. Good to have you. Also, an interesting fact that I learned over the weekend, uh, the only black person who has served in both chambers of Congress as well. Um, John, I believe you were the first to write a column back in the day saying Nikki Haley, <laughs> the then governor of South Carolina, should put... Uh, Tim Scott in uh, Jim DeMint's seat that he was leaving. I think to, back in the day, maybe from the national press, but sure, as, as a former South And now they're South both Carolina, running for Now president. they're both running. You know, <laughs> South Carolina, the eyes of the nation turn to you. Uh, my, my folks moved to South Carolina 30 years ago, so I, I know South Carolina politics. Uh, and, and I think the fact that Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, you know, are b both running speaks to, I think, the deeper diversity uh, of, of, the, of the Republican bench in the South than people sometimes think. Yeah. Um, and, and I think both are going to be very place significant roles, not only because they stand out from the pack in, in obvious ways, the only African-American in the Senate, but because Tim Scott's message, uh, he's going to be selling something that traditionally people who run for president sell uh, that, that, you know, no one in the era of Trump seems to be doing, which is doubling down on a defiant optimism, right? He's saying that, you know, that the mess of this country is, is, is opportunity, not oppression. That could sell very well to a national audience as well as a Republican primary look audience. I wouldn't underestimate story. it. I mean, exactly his story right. exemplifies that. And, and, and the way in which he says, look, my faith journey, the conservative yes. Christian principles are what led me to right. this pinnacle of uh, uh, place in the U.S. Senate. And that, that could be a very compelling message. And you see already, you know, with, you know, CNN reporting John Thune, the number two person in the Republican Senate, backing him for president. That speaks to the fact that he is respected among his peers, something that other frontrunners can't necessarily say. Um, I read that when it comes to Nikki Haley, who is also <laughs> from mm -hmm. South Carolina, governor, uh, is also running, um, that one of her friends from high school had to have a very uncomfortable conversation with her saying, I'm going to back Tim Scott. I think the question to you, Shane, is this optimism that he's had, he hasn't had the thing that she's had, which is really tough races where it's between him and someone else and it is a battle. What does that tell you? Is he battle tested enough? It's really easy to be optimistic when you're not in the middle of a dogfight. And <laughs> Tim Scott has not been in the middle of a dogfight yet. He was appointed to the Senate seat by Nikki Haley. He won a Republican primary to become a House member. But at the national stage, he hasn't gotten into a tussle yet. And look, he does have an optimistic message. And when you're in crowds, Republican crowds really like that message. Mm. But when you talk to Republican primary voters and when you talk to Republican political strategists, the mood of the Republican electorate is dour. Mm. And they're not necessarily looking for optimism. They're looking for fighters. This is why when Ron DeSantis is talking about what he wants to do, he's talking about fighting. What Trump is talking about what he wants to do, it's fighting. So Tim Scott, he's bringing a completely different approach. And it's one of the reasons that almost everyone running for president has Tim Scott on their list of people who they might want to be their running mate because he brings a different balance to a ticket. I, but but I, I don't think we should you know, dismiss a Nikki Haley or Tim Scott. Not that you were doing that, saying that they're running for vice president. That's clearly not their Nikki intention. Nikki Haley said, I don't run for number two yeah. or something. Last yeah, week. but but I want to I want to offer a counterpoint to that. I mean, you can make the strong case that Tim Scott's rise was a dogfight. Yes. You know, Charleston City Council, Congress. You know, from from being a, the, the son of a single mother, that that was a dogfight. The fair criticism 
I, I think, is, is that he hasn't had executive experience. Mm -hmm. And the presidency is an executive job, whereas Nikki Haley has. Um, and I think we often overlook that. But, but he, he could make a really major impact on this race and in a positive way, not only for the Republican Party, but for the Republic. I am um, I'm really struck by his story. I think everyone who, who reads it uh, will be if they're not already. But especially this point that he has made throughout his political career about victim mentality. That's mm -hmm. the word that he uses. And, and that's what he ascribes his policy beliefs to. Shane, if you could just speak to that a bit and how it sets him apart from others in the field at this point. I mean, part of his identity is that he's one of the only leading black Republicans in the country. And when you've, I've read his most recent book, and it is a really compelling story. His life story is an incredible story, and it's why when he gave the State of the Union response, he saw an outpouring of online donations organically. This is the kind of thing most Republicans don't get. And so, but the base of the Republican Party remains mostly white voters. Mm -hmm. And so his message is really also appealing to those white voters saying, look, I got ahead, I'm where I am, and you don't have to embrace larger Democratic-backed governmental programs to advance black people in America. You can get there the way I did, too. And it really hit that message. It does appeal to the white base of the Republican Party. It's really interesting. Shane, John, thank Shane. you guys so much. Thanks, Appreciate guys. A man facing a manslaughter charge over the chokehold death of Jordan Neely on a New York City subway is speaking. What he says he would do if he were in that situation again. And new this morning, Meta has been slapped with a record-breaking $1.3 billion fine by European regulators. Why they claim, what they claim the company actually did. That's coming up. An ex-Marine wrongfully detained in Russia for more than four years gets a rare chance to speak to the world in an exclusive interview with CNN. Paul Whelan has languished behind bars for years, accused of espionage in Russia. He called CNN from a remote prison camp about 200 miles outside Moscow. I've been held hostage for more than 52 months, and the only crime I have committed in Russia is that of being an American citizen. During that call, Whelan urged the United States to speed up efforts to get him released finally. CNN's Kylie Atwood is here. Um, thank you so much uh, for coming in. This is remarkable to hear from him from one of those prison camps where life is absolutely horrific. Can you tell us what else he's had to say? Yeah, well, he, when you speak about it being horrific in the prison camp, he spoke about having to do forced labor. He spoke about the conditions being incredibly poor. And that is why, even though, of course, he's hopeful that the Biden administration is doing everything that they can to try and bring him home, the thrust of his message is that he wants them to move along more quickly. Yeah. Paul Whelan, an American who has been wrongfully detained in Russia for more than four years, speaking to CNN from a Russian prison. I remain positive and confident on a daily basis that, um, you know, the wheels are turning. I just wish they would turn a little bit more quickly. The last time he spoke with CNN's Jennifer Hansler by phone was in December, shortly after the release of WNBA star Brittany Griner, the result of a second prisoner swap between the U.S. and Russia that didn't include Whelan. Today, he fears the possibility of being left behind again, but his tone is more optimistic. I'm more confident now. Um, you know, I, I feel that my life shouldn't be considered less valuable or important than others who have been... Uh, 
previously traded. I have been told that although Evan's case is a priority, mine is also a priority. Evan Gershkovich is a Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained by Russian authorities almost two months ago. Just like Whalen, he has been charged with espionage. Evan went to report in Russia to shed light on the darkness. U.S. officials are scouring the globe for options that could draw Russia to the negotiating table and secure the release of both men. Paul's sister, Elizabeth Whelan, took a bold step when she appeared at the United Nations Security Council meeting attended by Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov last month, calling on the country to release her brother. Paul was a corporate security director. He had a job he loved, a home, a life of hope and opportunity. All that has been taken away from him by Russia, a country that revels in its culture of lies, its tradition of hostage diplomacy. He watched her remarks from behind bars, alongside Russian prisoners who were stunned. It was funny because we stood here um, in the prison watching the TV, and I'm watching my sister speak at the UN, and everyone was mesmerized that this sort of thing could happen. And his message to President Biden is simple. Freedom is not free and comes at a price. But the loss of freedom is even more costly, and I pay that cost every day Russia holds me. Please follow through with your promises and commitments. Truly make my life a priority and get me home. And those remarks that you saw there from President Biden were actually at the White House Correspondents' Center. Willen was able to see those remarks, which is quite remarkable given that he's in Russian wow. prison. And President Biden said that they are going to keep doing everything they can until Willen is home. And he told our producer, Jennifer Hansler, that those comments were very encouraging to him. Well, it's good to hear his voice. It's good to hear him sounding a bit upbeat, even yeah. though we all know so where he is. Remarkable. Yeah. His sister joined us on set, Caitlin and I, a few weeks ago, and I'm sure she's very uh, happy to hear him feeling a little bit more upbeat yeah. about this. She's been fighting for him so much. It's hurting, yeah. yeah. Thank you. So CNN speaks with former Trump attorney Tim Pelletori after he announced he was leaving the former president's legal team. The tense relationship driving his decision, the lawyers around him not getting along. That's next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We have new revelations about the inner workings and conflicts among former President Donald Trump's legal team. CNN was the first report, you'll remember uh, Paula Reed and Caitlin's reporting, that a top former now, top Trump attorney, Tim Palatori, who played a key role in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation, was leaving the defense team. Our Paula Reed was the first to speak with him and find out why he left. She joins us now. So, what's it about? Well, Poppy, I think we can best describe this as irreconcilable differences. <laughs> Tim <divorce>. appointed... <laughs> yes, uh, a messy one, an increasingly messy one. Tim pointed the finger squarely at another Trump advisor, Boris Epstein, saying that it was making he was making it impossible for Tim and other attorneys to properly represent the former president. But I will let Tim explain in his own words what he saw as the problem here. Let's take a listen. He served as kind of a, um, a filter to prevent us from getting information to the client and getting information from the client. Uh, 
in my opinion, he was not very honest with us or with the client on certain things. Uh, there were certain things like the searches that he had attempted to interfere with. And then more recently, as we're coming down to the end of this investigation where Jack Smith and ultimately Merrick Garland is going to make a decision as to what to do, as we put together our defense strategy uh, to help educate Merrick Garland as to how best uh, to handle this matter, he was preventing us from engaging in that strategy. Uh, you said that Boris tried to prevent you from conducting searches. What searches are those? Th this is the searches that, at uh, Bedminster um, initially. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from him where he didn't want us doing the search, and we had to eventually overcome him. So there, he's accusing Boris of trying to prevent the legal team from conducting additional searches for classified documents. That is a significant accusation. Now, a spokesman for former President Trump has responded, saying, quote, Mr. Parlatori is no longer a member of the legal team. His statements regarding current members of the legal team are unfounded and categorically false. Now, look, infighting in Trump world is nothing new, but to see it spill out into public view while their client is facing multiple criminal investigations and a criminal prosecution in New York is certainly significant. Now, Tim also denied that he had to step away from the legal team because he has previously testified before the grand jury. Paula Reed, thank you so much uh, for all of that and your great reporting because you were the first person to mm -hmm. come forward to say, hey, mm -hmm. this another person's leaving the Trump team. That's right, her reporting with Caitlin Paula, that was great, thank you. So a group of tourists about to start a different kind of week-long vacation. This one is in space. What's on the itinerary for these three private astronauts? To the people around the world, well, the future is very bright. And I would like you to dream big, believe in yourselves, and believe in humanity. Let me take you on a little trip, my supersonic ship. Wow, look at that camera work. In less than three hours, space tourists on the Axiom 2 mission are expected to dock with the International Space Station. This is the second group of these kinds of astronauts heading to the ISS. The crew includes three paying customers and a former NASA astronaut. Dragon separation. Wow. And you can see... <laughs> live on your screen, that dragon shrunken capsule. Poppy is clapping. I am literally clapping. clapping. <laughs> uh, the four-person crew will spend eight days aboard the ISS and conduct more than 20 experiments. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live for us this morning at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. How's it going? Well, Sarah and Poppy, uh, good morning. Uh, things are going pretty well out here. It was a spectacular launch here at Kennedy Space Center uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, we're a little over 13 hours into this uh, space mission, and right now that four-member crew is trying to catch up with the International uh, Space Station. Uh, taking a look at their schedule today, it looks like they're going to try uh, to dock with ISS at around 9.20 in the morning, and then around 11 in the morning, they're going to go ahead and open the hatch, and then sometime after that, they're going to 
to uh, meet the other eight astronauts that are currently on board the International Space Station. As you all mentioned, uh, the four-member crew includes two Americans as well as two Saudis. Uh, Peggy Whitson, she is the commander of this uh, space mission. She is a former NASA astronaut, a former commander of the International Space Station, and she has got a great deal of experience in space, having spent 665 days. The other American on board is John Schaffner. He is the mission pilot, and the two of them are joined by two Saudis, Ali Alkani, he is a mission specialist. And then Rayana Barnawi, she is the first Saudi woman in space. Yesterday, we heard briefly from all four astronauts after they were a few hours into their space mission. Here's what Ali said about what it feels like to be in space right now. As I look outside uh, into space, it, it, I can't help but think this is just the beginning of a great journey for all of us. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy it with us and, and dream big. And for some of the folks that came out to watch this launch yesterday, they were treated to another spectacular sight. That's because uh, the uh, rocket booster successfully landed here at Kennedy Space Center. It was a little difficult to see, but you couldn't uh, miss it because uh, there was a loud sonic boom as it successfully landed here at Kennedy Space Center. Uh, Sarah and Poppy? That's so cool. Peggy could fly us to the moon any day. Literally. Literally. Yeah, Carlos, thank you so much for that. Thank you. All right, he is facing a manslaughter charge, but says if he were in a similar situation, he would do the same thing. What the man who put Jordan Neely in that deadly chokehold is saying as he speaks this morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So in money this morning, Facebook's parent company Meta is being fined a record $1.3 billion for violating the European Union data protection rules. It is the highest amount any company has ever been fined for breaching those EU rules. They date back to the 2020 landmark data privacy law. Melissa Bell joins us now. So is there is this it? They have to pay it? Uh, no, they will appeal. They've said so already, Poppy. But I think what matters here is the amount that's being uh, levied or that the European Union is trying uh, to fine Meta with. And it really reflects their frustration. When you look at their statement, uh, they talk of uh, systematic, repeated, continuous breaches of that GDPR. Of course, the problem here, Poppy, is that ever since uh, the pact, the deal that allowed uh, the United States and Europe to transfer and share the data, a privacy shield uh, was struck down by European courts worried about the protection of European data, for instance, from things like NSA surveillance uh, once it's on American servers. Uh, this opened the door for this particular case. Now, despite all those warnings, what the European Union says, and this is coming uh, through Ireland because that is where Meta's European headquarters is, uh, they felt that they've had to impose uh, this fine to send a strong signal, they say, uh, that the GDPR, that data protection uh, law that you mentioned, means that European data needs to be better protected than Meta has allowed for it to be. Now, it isn't over yet. Meta says it will appeal. It has, if it fails, six months to come into line with European regulations. But I just want to read you, uh, Poppy, the uh, response from Meta uh, on this question of uh, data protection. The ability 
for data to be transferred across borders is fundamental to how the global open internet works. Without the ability to transfer data, the internet risks being carved out into national and regional silos, restricting the global economy. So a fairly strong, strong response there from Meta in terms of the fundamentals of what this means for the market and for the internet generally. As I say, there will be an appeal, uh, so we will find out uh, more about what happens. But Meta have also, also said there will be no disruption to its services here in Europe, Poppy. But it, one of the core tenets of GDPR is about telling people what you're doing with your data, right? Not just about transferring it, but telling users. Did they know? That's right. And I think what comes out of these particular decisions is that in terms of those very strict GDPR rules, they have not been informed. People have not been made aware that their data is being transferred yeah. to their service servers. And when the European regulators look at it, that information is not seeing the sufficient safeguards that mm -hmm. the European law requests. Melissa Bell, thanks. That's really helpful reporting. Appreciate it. The man accused of choking to death a homeless man known for his Michael Jackson impersonations on a New York City subway train says he would do it again if there was a threat and danger. Daniel Penny did his first interview since the incident with the New York Post on Saturday. The former Marine is facing second-degree manslaughter charges and is currently out on a $100,000 bond. He's accused of killing Jordan Neely, Neely nearly three weeks ago. Witnesses described Neely getting on the train, acting erratically and screaming he was ready to die. At one point, Penny came up behind him and put him in a chokehold. CNN's Omar Jimenez is here with us this morning. Um, what more did we hear from Penny um, as he talked to the New York Post? Well, he was basically trying to paint himself as a normal guy. He said he was not a white supremacist, that this had nothing to do with race. And as you mentioned, when asked if he would do the same thing again, he said he would if there was a threat and danger. Now, from witness accounts, we do know that Jordan Neely was acting erratically, but also from witness accounts, he hadn't actually attacked anyone at that point. So that's really the gray area in this particular case. And uh, as part of this post interview, Penny also said, I'm deeply saddened by the loss of life. It's tragic what happened to him. Hopefully, we can change the system that so desperately failed us. He's been charged with second-degree manslaughter, out on $100,000 bail. Uh, but his attorney also told me, and I think this gives a glimpse into uh, their defense in this case, that Danny was protecting himself and everyone on that train. But what gets lost is that at the time he acted to defend those people, he put his own life and well-being on the line. He had no way of knowing if he would be hurt or killed. Now, on the other hand, Neely's funeral was this past Friday. His, his family has called for charges more than manslaughter. Um, mm -hmm. And so they want to see this through to an actual conviction. Mar, thank you for all your reporting on this. We'll follow it very closely. All right. See you then this morning. Continues, Continues right now. now. <laughs> faith and credit of the United States still hanging very much in the balance. We are in very dangerous territory. There is no bipartisan deal to be made solely on their partisan terms. It seems as though he wants default more than he wants a deal. I will never give up. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin claims the troops are pulling out of Ukraine on May 25th as Russia claims to have captured Bakhmut. That would be a remarkable risk to take. Wagner forces may find themselves in the jaws of a trap. The country, which is bigger than we are, cannot occupy us, cannot win in this war. 
South Carolina's Tim Scott now has his sights set on the White House. I'm looking forward to optimistic, positive leadership that is anchored in conservative principles. You're not going to get the nomination by going around Donald Trump. You have to confront him head on. The Axiom 2 mission is on its way to the International Space Station. As I look into space, I can't help but think this is just the beginning of a great journey for all of us. Dream big. The fairy tale story. I have this weird kind of sensation that uh, life's not going to be quite the same moving forward, but only in a good way, which is cool. I'm living a dream. I'm making sure that I enjoy this moment. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour. So glad you're with us here on CNN this morning, but I'm even more glad my friend Sarah Seidner is here. It's good to have you. It's so good to be Thank here. You Thank you for getting up early. It's my pleasure, I think. <laughs> so far, so good, So far, right? so good. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin is back later this week. Sarah's with us today and tomorrow. And we begin with this. Get right to it. Overnight, President Biden racing back to Washington from Japan for debt limit negotiations. Just hours from now, he's set to once again meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as time runs out to reach a deal and prevent an economic disaster. There's less than 10 days before the government potentially defaults on its debts. House Republicans are demanding big spending cuts and stricter work requirements for things like food stamps and Medicaid. Before he left his summit with world leaders to rush back to D.C., President Biden told reporters a lot of the GOP's demands are, in his words, unacceptable. I think there are some MAGA Republicans in the House who know the damage that it would do to the economy. And because I am president and presidents are responsible for everything, Biden would take the blame. And that's the one way to make sure Biden's not reelected. That is quite a statement there. Speaker McCarthy says he had a productive phone call with President Biden while he was flying home on Air Force One. Look, there's no agreement on anything. We've all said our piece about where we are. and We're trying to find common ground to make get this done. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida. It's good to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so let's just dig right into where we are. Uh, I wonder first your response to what uh, the Republicans did over the weekend, which is basically add more asks to what they want to have an agreement to raise the debt ceiling. And those asks include some of the provisions in the Republican uh, immigration bill, adding that, and also additional changes to work requirements for food stamps, basically making it harder for states to get a waiver, give people a waiver uh, to bypass those work requirements to get SNAP benefits. What's your reaction? Yeah, so right now, obviously, my, my biggest reaction is, is that the debt ceiling discussions are really nowhere uh, because I, both sides are continuing to posture. Both sides are throwing out, you know, all sorts of different issues as they try to figure out, you know, where they can get to some sort of middle. So if the, you know, if the Democrats don't feel like they're getting something, they'll throw out an idea. If the Republicans don't feel like they're getting something, they'll throw out a new idea. And that's why we've seen the debt discussions take pauses several times. I think what the president just said earlier is true. I think there are people 
uh, in the Freedom Caucus that do believe, uh, you know, defaulting is an option because they do believe politically it would benefit them. We saw President Trump actually on this network say that we should default, which I looked as a permission slip to those folks you mean during uh, in the, town the Freedom hall? Caucus. But we have to... Yes, during the town hall, uh, you know, we saw President Trump say that, you know, the nation should default. And so that that was a permission slip for folks in the Freedom Caucus to start causing trouble. Listen, we have to get to a deal because defaulting would be totally catastrophic. And, and that deal, when that eventually comes, because I do think we will eventually get one, it's just going to depend on whether we get it by June 1. We also could see our credit rating downgraded before then, like we did over 10 years ago, as we got closer to the date. And so, you know, this deal is going to have to come. You're going to have to have Democrats and Republicans in the House vote for it. We're probably going to shed both folks on the progressive left and folks on the on the right, the MAGA right, the Freedom Caucus. And so trying to trying to find that middle ground is is where they're at. I'm hopeful because so far the body language from both the speaker and the president seem to be that they're still negotiating. I think we should have been talking this entire time. Uh, but we are where we are. Uh, but default would just be completely catastrophic. Uh, yeah, what every economist agrees with that. Congressman, you just said something really interesting in your answer. You said both sides are posturing. You mean Democrats and Republicans. Do you blame Democrats and the Biden White House equally with Republicans here that we are at this point? No, I, I don't, uh, because obviously we could have passed a clean debt ceiling. I'm for a clean debt ceiling. That has been an option. It's something we did three times in the Trump administration. It's something that we've done, you know, dozens of times. In fact, we've done it more times under Republican presidents than we have under Democratic presidents. But at the end of the day, we have to understand the cards that we are dealt. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. we lost the House. And so we, we have to raise the debt ceiling. We have to work with the folks that we have. And so we can say it's unfair, but it is the process. And so, look, the president of the United States has shown time and time again, it's why he has decades of experience, it's why we elected him, that he will figure out a way to make a deal so that we don't default. Yeah. Defaulting is worse than anything else that currently, you know, is being proposed. And so we have to figure out how we get a deal that can pass both the House and the Senate. Let's not forget the Senate has not even been at the table right. uh, for any of these real discussions. It's really, it's really going on between the president uh, and the speaker. Congressman, you tweeted over the weekend, it appears Dems' debt ceiling strategy bet Republicans couldn't pass a bill. But they did. Kevin McCarthy got it through. Um, I thought this was interesting from Republican uh, Senator Bill Cassidy speaking to Jake yesterday morning on CNN State of the Union. He made the argument that federal spending should return to pre-Biden levels. He thinks it is not um, not fair, I guess is the best word, for the White House to be setting these terms of capping spending at levels that the White House already elevated under Biden. Here's what Cassidy said. The president has been jacking up spending his first two years of the presidency. Now he wants Republicans to accept that as a new baseline. And I think Republicans are reasonable to ask that it be reset back down. Agree with Senator Cassidy that that's a reasonable ask? 
Well, let me say two things. Look, I think the American people, as they're tightening their spending, they want to see government do the same. That being said, it's nice to see my Republican colleagues all of a sudden care about spending. When President Trump was in charge, they racked up more debt in those four years than any other single president. It seems that they only care about spending when there's a Democrat in charge. That being said, you know, I do think the American people want us to get a deal. I do think they, they want to see us figure out how we can spend less as they're spending less, but they also want to see us pay our bills. They get a bill in the month every mail from their spending, and they know that they got to pay their bills. They don't get to say, well, before we pay our bill, let's discuss our spending American Express or Visa. No, they have to pay their bill. Otherwise, there's real life consequences. And so we have to pay our bills. But listen, I think it's a fair conversation to talk about spending okay. now, next year, the year after that, the year after that. Mm -hmm. And your point about Trump and the debt, part of that was obviously the 2017 tax cuts, but part of it was also COVID stimulus spending. I'll, I'll just note that. I do want to ask you about this because another thing that is really fascinating and is interesting this week is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is going to announce that he's running for president, right? The worst kept secret, but he's going to make it official. You worked for him and you complimented him on how he governed. You called him detail-oriented and data-driven. This is largely in emergency relief because you were the emergency management czar. What can we expect from a DeSantis run? Well, listen, the, the, like I've said previously, the governor is extremely bright. He is someone who is detail-oriented, and he is someone who's data-driven. Uh, and I, that we did that during COVID. That being said, obviously, the policies that have been passed in Florida uh, over the last several months, this session and last session, as he tries to get to the right of Donald Trump, which I don't believe there's such a thing, but he's going to attempt it. You know, those policies, obviously, I added, you know, I disagree with. It's things I voted against when I was in the Florida legislature. And so, look, the Republican primary is about to turn into a, a UFC WWE fight. You know, Vince McMahon could produce this between Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. There's reports last night that maybe Chris Christie is going to get into the race. And, and so, you know, we, we better buckle up uh, and strap in because this is going to be something we've not seen. You know, t you don't get around Donald Trump. You're going to have to go through Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the beginning right now, I think we've seen Ron DeSantis, you know, try to hit him with some kid gloves. But if you're going to if you're going to go take down Donald Trump, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to play on his level. I think that that's well, what the primary voters uh, want to see. You know DeSantis well. Will he take off those kid gloves pretty quickly? Well, like I said, he's data driven. So he's going to look at the numbers, <laughs> right? And so if you look at the national numbers, he's been going in the wrong direction. If you look yeah. at the state numbers in both Ohio and New Hampshire, he's a little closer. And so listen, he's going to look at those numbers. He's going to test his messages. I mean, he's going to do all of those things. And, you know, because that's what I've just seen how, you know, he, he works. And so he'll, he'll be looking at all of those things and figuring out what is working and what is not working. I just, I just thoroughly believe if you're going to take down Donald Trump and we saw this previously, you're going to have to go at him. Uh, and that's that's what's working. Look, the Donald Trump's numbers have gone up yeah. over the last couple of weeks and months based on based on some of the things he's been saying. And so, and so you know, if you're going to beat him, I think you just got to go right at him. OK, uh, Congressman Jared Moskowitz, really appreciate you being on. And let's hope that Congress can reach a deal very soon to raise the debt ceiling. Appreciate it. All Thanks, right. Poppy. You got it. Sarah.
All right, speaking of those primaries, this morning, South Carolina Republican Senator Tim Scott is expected to formally announce he is running for president. The race for the GOP nomination already includes former President Donald Trump, as you know, and fellow South Carolinian former Governor Nikki Haley. But Scott is planning to stand out by offering a more optimistic tone than his Republican rivals. CNN's Eva McKend has more for us. He's the only black Republican in the United States Senate. The story of America is not defined by our original sin. The story of America is defined by our redemption. South Carolina's Tim Scott now has his sights set on the White House. Leaning on his compelling personal story and conservative policy credentials, Scott joins a growing Republican primary field, currently led by former President Donald Trump. When you adhere to the principles in the gospel, human flourishing cannot be stopped, period. Advisors say Scott will make his faith a cornerstone of his presidential campaign. See, I was raised by a single mother in poverty. The spoons in our apartment were plastic, not silver, but we had faith. We put in the work and we had an unwavering belief that we too could live the American dream. First elected to Congress in 2010, Scott was appointed to the Senate in 2012 by then-Governor Nikki Haley, who launched her own presidential bid in February. I think fresh faces and authenticity goes a long way in the political process. So far, Scott is sticking to the message of hope over hostility that has defined his career. I'm looking forward to optimistic, positive leadership that is anchored in conservative principles. Back at the senator's home church near Charleston, there are hundreds of worshipers that see him most weekends. He has a commitment to be in church 40 weekends out of the year. Oh, yeah. Including his longtime pastor and friend, Greg Surratt. I think a misconception that people might have about him is that his niceness, his humility, uh, translates as weakness. And uh, they don't know the Tim Scott that I know. Uh, I would like to, I, I like to kind of see it as uh, an iron fist and a velvet glove. Did he talk to you about running for president? Sure. And did you give him any advice? I said, as an American citizen, I would be excited to see Tim Scott as president of the United States. As your friend, I can't think of a reason why you'd want that job. <laughs> and so that was my advice to him. Senator Scott did have an early stumble out of the gate, and that was when a few weeks ago he was asked about the federal abortion ban at 15 weeks. He declined to answer that question, only to later say that he would support a 20-week abortion ban. And then when asked again, he said he didn't want to get into a discussion about the matter of weeks. This is going to be a central issue in the Republican primary, this issue of abortion. Curious to see how he addresses it at his formal launch today. Sarah, Poppy. What every, uh, every Republican contender is gonna have to answer that question, that's for sure.
All right, just hours from now, the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students will be in court. We are expecting Brian Koberger to enter a plea today. He's facing four murder char- charges and a burglary charge. Investigators say Koberger stabbed four students to death in an off-campus home in November. Remember, there was a long, long search. Students in the small community around the school lived in terror as the authorities searched for the killer for a month and a half. Our Jean Casares is with us this morning. What should we learn today in court? This is a very important hearing today because it is the formal arraignment. And I say formal because it is now in district court, which is the trial court. Because of that indictment last week, it went straight to the trial court. So he will enter a play, plea. You will hear him speak himself as he does that. They also will apprise him of the charges constitutionally. He must have notice. Of course, these are the original charges. But let's remind everyone what they are. There are four counts of first-degree murder. This was a quadruple homicide, and one count of burglary, the coming into a home with the intent to commit the felony therein. And we cannot forget the victims in t- for today's hearing. Kaylee Goncalves, Maddie Mogan, Ethan Crumbly, and Zaina Kernodal. All of them students at the University of Idaho in Moscow, and they all lost their lives. Now, what we need to look forward to is whether this will be a death penalty case, because in Idaho, they've got 60 days from today to determine whether they will seek notice of intent to seek that death penalty. So we'll have to wait for that. But if you remember, um, Kayla Goncalves' family, they said that they were in favor of the death penalty. And it matters what the victims care about. Absolutely. The prosecution has to listen to them as well. Um, Jean Casares, thank you. You're always on the hardest stories of the day. Appreciate it. Thank you. A shootout at a car show near Mexico's border with California leaves at least 10 people dead there. What authorities suspect was behind that shooting. Plus. Mr. President, President Zelensky is Bakhmut still in Ukraine's hands. The Russians say they've taken Bakhmut. After months of intense fighting, Russian mercenaries say they have captured the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, but Ukraine's President Zelensky denies that claim. We'll take you live to southeastern Ukraine. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I clearly understand what is taking place in Bakhmut, and we all clearly understand why all of that is taking place. The country, which dozens times is bigger than we are, cannot occupy us, cannot win in this war. Ukrainian President Zelensky speaking alongside President Biden at the G7 summit about the bloody battle for Bakhmut. The Russian mercenary Wagner Group is now claiming to have captured the eastern Ukrainian city, but Zelensky is denying those claims and says there's nothing left there after Russia destroyed the entire city. CNN Sam Kiley is live in southeastern Ukraine uh, with more on the situation. Sam? Well, Sarah, I think that the first thing to take away from this is that whilst the Ukrainians are saying they still have a small foothold in the city of Bakhmut, they concede that Wagner controls most of the rest of the city that is rubble. There is nothing left of the city to really care about. But more importantly, from the Ukrainian perspective, they are also holding the flanks. Indeed, they've advanced on the northern, southern flanks, which means that they have uh, the Wagner mercenary group potentially 
in the mouth of their jaws, which uh, ultimately they could turn to their advantage by using Bakhmut as a free fire zone and going after the Bakhmut uh, city center, which is held by the mercenaries, so the mercenaries claim. On top of that, Prigozhin, the leader of the organization, Sarah, and we have to say that this is a man who says more or less anything every day, but his latest statement uh, when he took the city was that he would be uh, pulling his men out on Thursday. Uh, and expected the Russian regular forces to invest the city. Uh, if he were to try that, that would provide the Ukrainians with a golden opportunity during the so-called relief in place uh, to attack both sides. That would be a point of great vulnerability. It's that I don't think we should set any store by it whatsoever. After all, this man uh, is, after all, a murderer. Sarah? Well, Sam Kiley, thank you so much for being there. And thank you to your crew, including Sanjeev Talraja, one of my favorite photographers. I thank you both for putting yourself in danger to bring us those stories. Let's bring in retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lines. It's good to have you, as always. So let, let's begin there, because Zelensky's saying not for sure that Bakhmut has fallen to the Russians. Uh, Russia, the Wagner Group, is saying yeah. it has. Why is it significant? Not strategically, but... Propaganda-wise? Propaganda, that's all that's going on here. This is the twilight part of this battle at this point. There's no, nothing tactically more to be gained. The, the city has been flattened fundamentally. It's more or less, it shows Ukrainian resilience, but also Russian military failure. They're trying to claim some kind of victory right now that just isn't there. Okay, so also a shift in the Biden administration's views on F-16s mm -hmm. uh, over the weekend, right? Yeah. Um, at least greenlighting joint training of F-16 pilots. Yep. Uh, with our European allies. Mm -hmm. Why is that significant? Because as you know, Wall Street Journal editorial board, very critical that it's taken this long. They write uh, about it. The obvious question is why this decision took 15 months. Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, let's be clear right about this. The F-16s are not gonna be game changing to the situation on the ground. It's not gonna give air superiority to the Ukraine military. There's gonna be a very long time before they're actually gonna be impactful. I think it took that long because from a strategic perspective now, you're gonna see uh, Ukraine eventually in NATO. This is really kind of a fait accompli now because of them getting this platform. Because so, of fighter jets, not previous weapons like HIMARS, et cetera? No, this is a strategic weapon. So like, for example, he, uh, Zelensky tells President Biden he's not going to attack into Russia, Russia because the F-16 gives him that capability. Right. Hard border, right, around uh, between Ukraine and, and Russia here. There's targets in Belgorod. There's uh, air, air, air base targets here, missile sites along this, along this border here. There's multiple sites that the F-16 now has capability to attack that uh, cross that border. And that, kind of, that violates, that's where that from these weapons were supposed to be defensive now become right. offensive. Looking at the countries where it's likely that the F-16s would come from, if yeah. not the United States, what? So I think these four countries are the ones that likely give up uh, the F-16s they have that are in their inventory as they transition to F-35s. Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Belgium. Uh, maybe 30 to 60 or so F-16s within the next few months. It's still going to take significant amount of time. Three major issues here. We've got to train pilots. We have to make sure the pilots are up to speed on what's going on. That's going to be four to six months. And it's, and it's a surmountable challenge right now. But maintenance and sustainability of these things are going to be a key. There's some spare parts that they're not even made anymore. Lastly, right. what are the munitions going to look like? What are those airframes are going to be on them? Because the F-16 is a platform that does a lot of different things. I'll note it. This pilot training is a reason why a number of members of Congress, especially Republicans, were calling on the Biden administration to start the training yeah. 
earlier in case we got to this point. Let's talk about what was signed overnight. The president had to cancel his leg of this trip, Mm -hmm. so he didn't go for a first ever, what would have been a historic visit, first American president to go to Papua New Guinea. But Secretary Blinken went, and overnight they have come out with a joint defense agreement, a maritime agreement. Can you speak to the significance of that given... the rising influence of China in the region? Yeah, big win for the administration diplomatically. Papua New Guinea is a location right north of Australia. It provides tremendous place for the Navy to project power from, naval assets. We saw the Chinese make deals with the Solomon Island countries before. There's going to be this pivot to the Pacific that's finally now taking place. I think it's very important that this administration did that. Very big win for the administration. Okay, thank you, Mike Lyons. Great to have you, as always, Major Mike Lyons. Sarah. Just ahead, a transgender teenager in Mississippi missing her high school graduation after she was told she had to wear boys' clothes in order to attend. She tells CNN she would rather stand up for what's right than be humiliated. More of her story just ahead. And also imagine hitting the biggest shot of your life in front of, oh, just the entire world. The Cinderella story that everyone is talking about this morning. That's next. A transgender student in Mississippi skipped her high school graduation after a judge sided with school officials who said she must follow the boys' dress code for the ceremony. The teenager's family filed a motion in court asking she be allowed to wear a dress and heels under her graduation robe. But on Friday, just one day before the ceremony, a judge denied the family's request. CNN's Isabel Rosales joins us now live this morning. Isabel, how did this all play out? Yeah, and uh, Sarah, good morning to you. So I spoke with Samantha Brown, that's a mom, and LB, the transgender teenager. They asked me to to keep with her initials out of concerns for her privacy and uh, safety. And they feel upset. They feel disappointed. They're confused. They feel like they missed out on a big moment in LB's life. Um, now they are evaluating their next legal options. So here's a picture right here of the white dress that she would have worn underneath this white robe that goes all the way down to her ankles. LB tells me she's been openly transgender for four years now since her freshman year of high school. And this was something known to school members, to administrators, to other students. And she tells me that last year at prom, she wore a dress and heels with no problems. But then two weeks to graduation, she was told she could not wear a dress. Listen. It was definitely, um, it was it was a hard, long decision. But I would rather stand up for what's right than be humiliated and feed into their their thoughts and their opinionated feelings on, you know, what's right and what's wrong with gender identity. Um, I I don't. I was I was very hurt, and just to see um, the hurt and and the humiliation on her face, you know, after the ruling, it was just. It was very upsetting for me. And we got a hold of the Harrison County School Policy for uh, the dress code for a graduation ceremony. And it says in part here that for girls are required to wear dresses or dressy pants suits. And for boys, a dress pants, shirt and a tie. And it says students whose attire does not meet the minimum dress requirements may not be allowed to participate in the graduation exercises. Now, note that this policy, we look through it, does not mention LGBTQ students. And it doesn't specify that you should dress based on the sex that you were assigned 
signed at birth. Uh, the school district, looking through the court documents, they made several legal arguments in court uh, saying that graduation is voluntary and there's no constitutional right protecting that, and also saying that they determine whether a student is male or female based on their birth certificate. Sarah. Isabel, it's just interesting that you would not even see this dress underneath the row, but there we are. Thank you so much for reporting the story out for us. Thanks. Thank you, Isabel. All right, golf star Brooks Kepka making history, winning his third career PGA championship. He finished nine under par yesterday at Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester, New York, to secure his fifth overall major. He's the first golfer to win a major while playing in the controversial Saudi-backed Live Golf Series. He joins Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods as the only players to have won the PGA Championship three or more times in the stroke play era. The win represents a major comeback for Kepka after overcoming a series of significant injuries in recent years. I honestly don't ever quit. Don't ever give up on anything. Uh, you never know how close you are, no matter how far it may feel. And I think that's one thing I would tell my son, that no matter what uh, what he's going through, what it is, you just never know what's around the corner. There's always, um, if you keep give maximum effort and, and always keep a good attitude. He's got a great attitude because he won, but <laughs> <laughs> it was Michael Block who stole the show at the PGA Championship. Watch. basketball game, not at a golf tournament. That was a hole-in-one shot by Block, a 46-year-old club pro who teaches golf lessons at a public course in California for like 150 bucks uh, for his lessons. That incredible shot capping a fairy tale weekend among the tour's pros who made the cut at Oak Hill. Block finished tied for 15th on the leaderboard, securing just under $300,000, not bad, and a spot at next year's PGA Championship. That's big. He normally earns 150 bucks, as I said, for, for a lesson for an hour. Now, Block was really emotional, as you might imagine, after this event. It's amazing. Uh... I'm living a dream. I'm making sure that I enjoy this moment. I've learned that after the my 46 years of life, that uh, it's not going to get better than this. There's no way, no chance in hell. Everyone is awesome, and uh, I can't thank everybody enough for being so cool to me. And cheers to the 29,000 uh, PGA Tour professionals, PGA professionals in the world. I uh, this for you guys. Oh, that was so sweet. He's the first PGA pro to finish inside the top 40 at the tournament since 2005. So cute. Michael Block, by the way, he's going to join us live in the 8 a.m. hour, something you definitely want to see. And before we go to break, the Foo Fighters making a big hire. Check it out. He's getting it. Josh Freeze is a veteran drummer, having played with bands like Nine Inch Nails, The Offspring, and Weezer. He'll be replacing longtime friend and drummer Taylor Hawkins, who died suddenly last year while on tour. The Foo Fighters will kick off their summer tour on Wednesday in New Hampshire.
this sad news to report this morning. At least 10 people are dead and nine injured after a shootout at a car show in Mexico. This took place in Mexico's Baja, California state on Saturday afternoon. Local authorities say an armed group jumped out of a van and began shooting at parked vehicles participating in the car race. The state prosecutor has opened an official investigation into the attack. New reporting on disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein and his relationship with Bill Gates. The Wall Street Journal is reporting Epstein appeared to threaten Bill Gates over an alleged affair with a Russian bridge player. The Microsoft co-founder met the woman around 2010. Epstein met her in 2013 and later paid for her to attend software coding school in 2017. Epstein emailed Gates and asked to be reimbursed for the cost of the course, according to to people familiar with the matter. The email came after the convicted sex offender had tried unsuccessfully to get Gates to participate in a multi-billion dollar charitable fund. That is also according to the journal's reporting. The implication behind the message according to people who have viewed it was that Epstein could reveal the affair if Gates didn't keep up an association between the two men. A spokeswoman for Gates told the journal, Mr. Gates, met with Epstein solely for philanthropic purposes. Having failed repeatedly to draw Mr. Gates beyond these matters, Epstein tried unsuccessfully to leverage a past relationship to threaten Mr. Gates. Yeah, that Russian bridge player declined to comment on Gates and said she didn't know who Epstein was when they met, according to the journal's reporting. We should note CNN cannot independently verify the claims in the journal's reporting. A spokesman for Gates told CNN this as well, quote, Mr. Gates never had any financial dealings with Epstein. As Bill has said before, it was a mistake to have ever met him. And here's what Gates told our colleague Anderson Cooper back in 2021. I had several dinners with him, uh, you know, hoping that uh, what he said about getting billions of philanthropy for global health uh, through uh, contacts that he had might emerge. You know, when it looked like that wasn't a real thing, that relationship ended. But it was a huge mistake uh, to spend time with him, to give him the credibility. Joining us now is one of the Wall Street Journal reporters who broke the story, Khadija Safdar. Khadija, fascinating, really important reporting because there have been so many questions about what the relationship was between Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein, how deep did it go, and what maintained it, if you could call it that. So to be clear to our viewers, your reporting is that Epstein was essentially trying to blackmail Bill Gates. Is that a correct assessment? That is how it was perceived. It, it was a veiled threat. And I think you have to keep in mind that this is probably like a nominal sum of money for these two people. <laughs> and the um, request for reimbursement came several years after the relationship and then after that charitable fund wasn't put together. So the timing of it led to um, Gates and then also others perceiving it as a threat. When it comes to a case like this, it's interesting that there's still so much that we don't know about a lot of the relationships between Epstein and others, and a lot of people talking other about that. Other powerful people. Other powerful people. A lot of people are, are concerned about what those relationships look like. How difficult was it for you to get this information? What led you down this road? So 
I've been looking into the Epstein case since 2019, and it has been really difficult to find information. And I think it's a bit like an onion, like you keep peeling back layers to try to understand how the per this person operated and how he was able to move through various layers of society. So it has been challenging, but um, in the last few months, we have learned more. What, what more can you tell us about the Russian bridge player and how she met Gates and Epstein? We're not using her name. We haven't been able to reach her or independently speak to her, but you, you have reporting. What can you tell us about that? Um, our understanding is that um, Gates and her met at a bridge tournament and that they played bridge together around 2010, 2009. And then um, later on, Gates' science advisor was trying to help her find an investor for a online bridge company. And that's when she met Epstein in 2013. And he reviewed a proposal to see if he could invest. He didn't end up investing. But then she and she wanted to take software coding classes to um, further her career, and Epstein paid for a boot camp. After your reporting, what have you heard? Because there's always there's usually fallout from something like this. What have you heard from? We, we saw some of the reporting from Gates, um, but what have you heard? Has this caused any other issues uh, for those involved? So we actually just broke this story yesterday, so we're still watching to see the reaction come in. But um, I think people are just have a lot of questions still about Epstein. I don't think this story like answers everything. Um, I personally still have a lot of questions about who he was and what his goals were. Khadija Softar, keep digging. There's a lot there, and there's a lot of interest in, in, in him and his relationships with powerful people and whether others got hurt because of it. Thank you so much uh, for all of your reporting so far. Yeah, because of all the victims yeah. in this. Okay, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will meet in just a few hours with less than 10 days until a potential U.S. default, which would be catastrophic. We'll get a look at where the negotiations stand ahead more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Yes. Today, officials in Uvalde, Texas, plan to hold a press conference as the city prepares to mark one year since that horrific school shooting at Robb Elementary School. 19 students, lest we forget, and two teachers were gunned down a year ago this Wednesday. On the latest episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper, parents watched never-before-seen footage of their children fleeing the carnage after police breached the classroom. The video that you're about to see is graphic and disturbing, but the parents say it's important for the world to see exactly what their children went through during those horrific 77 minutes. And that was her. So that was close. Did you see her? Did you recognize her? She also wanted to watch video of her daughter and other children placed on a school bus and taken to the hospital. The video is disturbing. Chloe wasn't physically hurt during the attack. And remember, the blood you're about to see is not hers. So hard to watch. Joining us now is CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokopez. Shimon, I was with you 
last night, we watched this together, and I, I saw you look away several times, get teary-eyed several times. It is impossible not to. Tell us how difficult it was, the moment where you're sitting with the parents and you're looking at this video of these kids covered in blood. Yeah, so when it pertains to Chloe's mother, Jamie there, Jamie Torres, she's an incredibly brave woman. You know, she wanted to see this video um, she knew we had it. We talked about it because I told her that we had this video. Uh, she said, I want to see it. And for me, like, sitting there, and I, it was the most difficult thing to do, knowing that at some point I was going to show her this video. And I didn't know when in the interview to do it, but I knew it was important for her to see and potentially for the world to see so they can get a picture into what these kids went through. I, I think it's, we're at a point in this country where it's important for people to see what these guns do to these kids. Um, and the mom agreed. Um, and you see there sort of this moment of when all these kids are on the school bus, there were not enough ambulances to put these kids right. in ambulances. Two of them were shot. One of them nearly died. Had the police waited any longer, she probably would have died. Bled out. Yeah, she would have bled out. She was passing out on the bus. It, it's, it's just... It's too much. It's almost too much yeah. for someone who's, whose child it isn't to and see And what's it, so right? frustrating is that we are, we are now a year later right. and so many questions still remain for these families. They can't get answers. I have family members calling me last night. Can you help us? Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure out the last moments of our loved one's lives. There are um, inconsistent statements. There's information that's not accurate out there. They want closure, but law enforcement is not giving it to them. So they're turning to us because they know we have all this information. So it puts us in a weird position, certainly, uh, to have to be the ones to do this. This is difficult and painful work. Because I want to show our viewers some video of another group of parents um, in your doc watching as their children fled the classroom. In fact, what you'll see here when we can pull it up is that one father got up and left the room in disgust while the mothers um, kept watching. Here you have it. Can you speak to why, just journalistically for you, you know, how challenging it was to make the decision to agree to show footage to the parents that the authorities would not and how you wrestled with all of that? It was hard. Um, I would say to you when I was, we were in the car, Matt Friedman, who's um, the producer on this, and I, we were in the car and I get a text from one of the mothers. She knew I was in town. She said, can we meet with you? We want to see yeah. this video. And I was like, no way, Uh, I can't do it. It's not something that is appropriate. It's not something I can do, but we kept talking. And then I said, you know what, we're gonna do it. Uh, And then of course we had to talk to our bosses here and figure out the situation, you know, how we would go about it. And I pushed to do it. But they supported you ultimately. 100%, they were the ones who said, we wanna do it, show it. And then we sat in that room and isn't it incredibly um, just brave of the mothers to sit there. The father couldn't handle it. Yeah. The mothers were like, we want to see this. We want to see what our kids went through. And they sat there and they sat through it and they watched. It was the most difficult thing to do because my biggest fear, honestly, was how are they going to react to this? Yeah. And what if... Yeah. And I don't want to re-traumatize them. I don't, certainly don't want to re-traumatize any of the kids. Yeah. Um, and I was just so scared about how they were going to react to it. What do you do if they react in a certain way? I'm not a trained professional, right. but this is what they wanted. And for so long, they haven't, they have not been getting what they wanted. And to finally be able to do that for them 
for me personally, as someone who's been so involved in this, was very meaningful. For one year, and now we're coming, I cannot believe it's a year coming up, um, and that authorities still haven't come out with their determination in their investigation. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the families don't have what they need, but you, you, your team has been giving that to the families. It is incredible reporting and so important for the families. Thank you, Sharon. And it's why you guys won a Peabody Award, yeah. so rightly deserved for this. It's what it, the whole game, it's what being a journalist is yeah. about, is what you and Matt and that team did, yeah, Shimon. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Sarah. We continue with CNN This Morning right now. I don't think Trump can win a general election, but that's a nice way for him to diss people like uh, Tim Scott, who's a pretty formidable candidate. That was Senator Bill Cassidy. That's where we begin on politics. Good morning, everyone. Today, Senator Tim Scott will officially announce he's running for president, giving Donald Trump yet another GOP challenger. We are also learning a top Republican is going to endorse him. And Paul Whelan, the ex-Marine stuck in prison in Russia, calls CNN from a Russian prison camp and gives us an exclusive interview. Coming up, you will hear his own voice and his plea to the U.S. government. Also, the latest SpaceX mission is about to dock at the International Space Station. It is carrying a decorated former astronaut and three paying customers. We have new details on their week-long stay in space. This hour of CNN This Morning continues right now. Overnight, President Biden rushing back to Washington from Japan for these debt limit negotiations. Just hours from now, he is set to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy again. They'll meet at the White House as time runs out to reach a deal on preventing basically economic calamity. There are less than 10 days to go before the government potentially defaults on its debt. Before he left the G7 summit with world leaders, Biden told reporters that many of the demands from House Republicans have been, quote, unacceptable. I think there are some MAGA Republicans in the House who know the damage that it would do to the economy. And because I am president and presidents are responsible for everything, Biden would take the blame. And that's the one way to make sure Biden's not reelected. Arlette Sines is live at the White House. Arlette, good morning. Uh, Kevin McCarthy did talk about the phone call he had with Biden over the weekend as productive. That was just yesterday as Biden was flying back. On Air Force One, does that bode well for the in-person version today? Well, Poppy, we'll see how that in-person meeting plays out. But President Biden, as he arrived back here at the White House last night, said that his conversation with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy went well. But this meeting here at the White House later this afternoon really offers an opportunity to the two men uh, to try to reset the conversations about how to avert a, a default after negotiations that played out over the weekend really played out in fits and starts. Now, the president and, and, and McCarthy had that phone call yesterday, which led to negotiations negotiators, a meeting for a little over two hours up on Capitol Hill to try to lay the groundwork heading into this meeting today. But the two sides do still remain incredibly far apart in their approach to a budget agreement. One of the key issues, uh, sources have said, is around the level of spending that they need to agree on. The White House has proposed freezing spending at the current year's levels, while Republicans want to see spending revert back to fiscal year 2022. One of the top negotiators 
numbers for Republicans. Congressman Garrett Graves said that the numbers are the baseline. If they're able to reach an agreement on that, then everything else will cascade into place. But it still remains unclear whether the two sides can come together on that matter. The president, while in Japan, warned uh, that he believes Republicans have adopted extreme positions and said that in order for an agreement to be bipartisan, Republicans also need to be willing to make some concessions. These are all issues that are likely to be raised during the president's high stakes sit down with Kevin McCarthy this afternoon. But really, this meeting comes at an urgent moment. You heard the Treasury Secretary over the weekend once again reaffirm that she believes June 1st is a hard deadline uh, for the nation to try to avoid a potential default, which would have catastrophic economic consequences across the board. Additionally, uh, also in play at this moment is the fact that it takes time to get legislation passed up on Capitol Hill. The House, uh, House Speaker would need to corral his Republican caucus. They would also need to get Democrats on board with any type of proposal. So what is clear in this moment is that time is very quickly running out with a default potentially occurring in as little as 10 days. So this really highlights the urgency of the president's meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this afternoon and really raises the question whether the two of them will be able to come to any type of agreement to avert a default. Let's hope they can. Arlette, thank you for the reporting. American Paul Whelan, an ex-Marine wrongfully detained in Russia for more than four years, speaks to CNN in a rare interview. Whelan called CNN from a remote prison camp about 200 miles outside Moscow. The last time he spoke with CNN by phone was in December, shortly after the release of WNBA star Brittany Griner. That was the second prisoner swap between the U.S. and Russia that did not include Whelan. Today, in an exclusive, he told CNN he fears being left behind again if an agreement is made for the release of Wall Street reporter Evan Berskovich, who was detained two months ago and has been charged with espionage just like Whelan. Despite his concerns, though, Whelan's tone was actually more optimistic. I remain positive and confident on a daily basis that, um, you know, the wheels are turning. I just wish they would turn a little bit more quickly. I'm more confident now. Um, you know, I, I feel that my life shouldn't be considered less valuable or important than others who have been uh, previously traded. I have been told that although Evan's case is a priority, mine is also a priority. You heard him there saying he's more confident now. Whelan also says this is his message for President Biden. Freedom is not free and comes at a price, but the loss of freedom is even more costly, and I pay that cost every day Russia holds me. Please follow through with your promises and commitments. Truly make my life a priority and get me home. U.S. officials are scouring the globe for options that could draw Russia to the negotiating table and secure the release of both Whelan and Gershkovich. The Republican primary field expected to get a little bit more crowded officially today. Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina will announce his presidential bid. He'll join a growing uh, group trying to stop President Biden from a second term. That list includes former President Trump, former U.N. ambassador and former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and radio talk show host Larry Elder. And Ron DeSantis about to make his uh his bit official later this week. Joining us now, CNN political commentator and attorney Bakari Sellers and CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Morning. 
Bakari, let me start with you. Tim Scott has quite a story, quite a life. What do you think he means for the party writ large in this primary? Well, first of all, I absolutely, I, I love Tim Scott. I adore Tim Scott. I think he's a man of character. I think uh, he says things he actually believes. I mean, we, we disagree 180 degrees on policy, mm-hmm. um, but I know Tim Scott, and I can actually say that his character is something that this political process needs more of. Mm. Now, with all that being said, those pleasantries out of the way, <laughs> I don't think he stands a chance of being the Republican nominee. Um, I think that he will be able to tell a good story. Uh, when people hear about his upbringing, where he comes from, I think they will be drawn to that. He's a good orator. Mm. Um, he'll have questions about policy, depth, et cetera. But I just think this field is Donald Trump's and Donald Trump's alone. Scott, now to you. I actually am curious what you think of that, because that is the sentiment of a lot of people that uh, this is Donald Trump's party and it's not going to be Senator Scott's or Nikki Haley's or anyone else's in the end. Well, what Bakari said is certainly what Democrats want is to run against Donald Trump. And I'm so glad Tim Scott is running because I think he's one of the most influential, optimistic, conservative voices in the country. His story, as Bakari said, is incredible. And his whole message of personal responsibility versus constant victimhood mentality Mm -hmm. is a conversation this country needs to have desperately. We need to have it in the Republican Party. We need to have it as a nation. And when you hear Tim Scott speak and when you see him do retail politics, you can see how he could catch on. I agree that right now Donald Trump's in a bit of a dominant position. If you just look at the polling, but that's the purpose of campaigns. And I think Tim Scott's going to really stand out in this field. I mean, the reality is if we nominated Tim Scott, we'd probably win the presidential campaign by 15 points next Mm. year. If we nominated Ron DeSantis, same thing. If we nominate Trump, it's a much dicier proposition for Republicans. And I think Tim Scott's optimism is going to be infectious in this field. And I'm glad for it. Scott, I wonder if you think too many people are writing off Tim Scott too quickly as a VP contender. I mean, they've been doing this before he even officially jumped in. He's got a ton of money. He now has the support of the number two Republican in the Senate, John Thune. Mike Rounds last Wednesday told the Washington Examiner he would also support Tim Scott. Are we underestimating his ability and a positive message to win the primary? Well, I think there are people who just want Donald Trump to have the nomination. They include Donald Trump and his people, all the <laughs> Democrats, most of the political media. I mean, every, everybody that has a, has a vested interest in having Donald Trump is trying to say this primary shouldn't even exist. This is the purpose of campaigns, to allow somebody like Tim Scott, who's got a terrific message and a terrific story, to go out and perform. Tactically, one thing you said is very important. He brings $22 million from his federal account into this campaign, not to mention an outside super PAC. This guy's got uh, the money to play for quite a while. And I, I'm telling you, when you get him out in retail settings, it's going to play. Tim Scott is an infectious guy. When you see him in person, people will say, hey, why, why not this? So I think he's going to have a moment. What's going to happen? I don't know. I bet on horses, not politicians. <laughs> but Tim Scott is one of my favorite people in They're this campaign. They're more predictable. <laughs> They're actually more, they are now, that's for yeah. sure. Um, Bakari, now to you. I, I want to ask you about the fact that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley both from South Carolina, both first. Uh, Tim Scott, the first uh, black Republican senator, Um, and Nikki Haley, the first Asian-American governor of the state. Just curious if you think that that is a problem. In other words, that they're going to step on each other's toes, that they're going to take each other's, you know, the ability to get uh, the GOP to support them. Uh, What happens? 
no, they won't step on each other's toes. I mean, like I said earlier, this race is Donald Trump and to a lesser degree, Ron DeSantis and everybody else. Even in South Carolina, the race of between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump is a battle for third place. I think larger, the larger message is uh, one of the things Scott mentioned about the people who want Donald Trump to be the nominee. He forgot that about 35 to 40 percent of the Republican base also want Donald Trump to be the nominee. What Tim Scott's campaign will do, though, and what Nikki Haley's campaign will do is a larger conversation we're going to have in this country, a larger conversation we'll have throughout the campaign, particularly Tim's campaign, because it's going to go a long way in helping a lot of disgruntled voters uh, absolve themselves of some type of white guilt. And we're going to have that conversation about race. It's going to be a robust conversation about race. And they're going to say, uh, you black folk, you minorities, go look at Tim, go look at Nikki. You can be them, too. And I think that totally misses the point. Uh, we, we, had, we heard about individual responsibility versus victimhood. I think that even Tim Scott will tell you and Nikki Haley will tell you uh, that in South Carolina, where mothers, black mothers are three to four times more likely to die during childbirth, the Orange Rig Massacre, Charleston Massacre, it ain't victimhood. It's actually being who you are and present in this country. And that's going to be a conversation we have. It's not going to be look at Tim Scott, go be like him. It's a conversation on where we are in this country and how far we have yet to go. Bakari uh, and Scott, thank you both so much for that. Thank you. It's rare you get a thank Republican you. and a Democrat disagreeing on what a good guy. Yeah. You know, they both spoke so highly of his character. Differences on policy. You don't hear that much you from, don't. from both sides of the, uh, of the argument, of the aisle. All right. Memorial Day air travel expected to be really back up this year. New warnings that delays are likely. So brace yourself. What you need to know for the summer travel season ahead. And later, he's a golf club pro who teaches lessons at a public golf course. And he just nailed the biggest shot of his life at the PGA Championship. Michael Block will join us just ahead. And yes, that was a hole in a a Duncan one. It was amazing. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Are you flying this holiday weekend? You might want to give yourself a little extra time. According to Triple A, 3.4 million Americans will fly this holiday weekend. That's an 11% increase from a year ago. Pete Montine joins us now. I am staying grounded, but are you flying? <laughs> I think I'm going to be flying. Sarah Sider flies all the time. I will try not to complain. You never complain, but a try. lot of people do. They get very angry. So what should they be prepared for? <laughs> you know, we always show up early, too, right? We're always the Not ones me. who are there. Not so no. We never cut it close. No. I've only been paged at the gate once. Uh, you know, this is going to be a huge weekend for air travel, and it's already been huge, which is so interesting. You know, the saying is that Memorial Day weekend is the unofficial start of summer travel, but it's really already gotten off to this early start. Look at the numbers from TSA. 2.65 million people screened at airports nationwide yesterday. That's a 12% increase over the same day last year. 2.21 million people on Saturday. 2.66 million people Friday. That is a pandemic-era air travel record. Broke the record we set back on the Sunday after uh, Thanksgiving when everyone came home all at once, so we've not seen a number that high since back in 2019. Airlines insist that they are right-staffed and right-sized for this huge summer travel season. But the big question now is whether or not the FAA and its air traffic control system can handle this. And we just saw over this weekend, on Sunday, 
There were issues at an air traffic control facility in Denver, which caused the FAA to impose a ground stop for about an hour for flights inbound to Denver. This is a story we've been covering in a big way. In fact, we have new exclusive reporting that really sheds light on the meltdowns of last summer. A little known FAA facility known as Jacksonville Center handles pretty much every commercial flight coming in and out of Florida, was short-staffed for 200 shifts over a seven-week period, CNN documents found out, and that caused 4,622 delays. This is why the airlines are really warning you to show up two hours before a domestic flight, three hours before an international flight, especially now. It's going to be huge at airports. And we're seeing this problem is not just limited to Florida, not just limited to Denver, even in New York. They're short staffed by about half at a key facility there. Yeah. Delays could go up by 45 percent. So you may show up early but you may be stuck waiting at the airport. So can you help us square that circle or whatever the saying is? <laughs> Wait, why should we show up early when no, there aren't enough air traffic controllers? I, I can't fly a plane. I know you can, but I can't. <laughs> Last time it's I a great question. <laughs> it's a good question. You know, I think anyone who shows up early, I cut it close. Okay, so I, I, I'm a bit of a hypocrite here. But anyone who shows up early has a lot more flexibility. Mm-hmm. And at least you know the full picture. The real big thing to do now, and it's 2023, mind you, check the app. Get the airline's app. That's the way to get the most up-to-date information. And also carry on. Don't check a bag, especially if you're connecting on a flight. Because that means if your connection gets canceled, you can easily take your bag off, figure out a different flight, figure out a okay. different alternative, rent a car, something else. Maximum flexibility. That's what it's all about. Pete Mantine. I'm glad I like you because listening to this makes me really, really upset. My car- Sorry. My carry-on is embarrassingly large. She it's- probably can't fit it. You're like pushing. Yeah. But to my yeah. husband's embarrassment you. every time. <laughs> All right. Coming up, the NAACP issuing a travel advisory for the state of Florida. Yep. The whole state saying the state has, quote, become hostile to black Americans. We'll speak to the NAACP president about that stance next. The NAACP has issued a new advisory about traveling to the state of Florida. It states, Florida is openly hostile towards African-Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ plus individuals before traveling to Florida. Please understand the state of Florida devalues and marginalizes the contributions of and the challenges faced by African-Americans and other communities of color. During Governor Ron DeSantis's administration, the state has banned the teaching of critical race theory, blocked an AP course on African-American studies, and passed several new restrictions on voting. CNN has reached out to Governor DeSantis's office, as well as Florida's official destination marketing organization called Visit Florida. We have yet to receive a response from them. DeSantis was asked about the potential of this happening back in March. What a joke. What a joke. Yeah, we'll see how we'll see how effective that is. It's ridiculous. And we're proud to be leading the nation in tourism. This is part of the reason why, you know, our country, you know, it, it goes through all these. We, we get involved in these stupid fights. This is a stunt to try to do that. It's a pure stunt. Joining us now, the president of the NAACP, Derek Johnson. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Derek. Thank you. Good morning. You just heard uh, the words of DeSantis himself calling this call by the NAACP a stunt. How do you respond? 
Well, the governor has uh, perfected the art of doing stunts to gain campaign contributions. Unfortunately, this will impact people's lives. Uh, we should not use race or othering as a tool to weaponize against people. And unfortunately, for a large percentage of the Floridians, that's what he has done. Therefore, we are advising African Americans and others that if you travel to Florida, beware that your life is not valued, that we have a political landscape that could cause harm as we prepare for the 2024 elections to right-size the political landscape in the state of Florida. I want to ask you what you intended to accomplish with this. What are you hoping happens because of this advisory? Well, we have talked to our members in the state of Florida, Florida partner groups, uh, uh, individuals in the large African-American communities. And so for many, they were asking, what should we do? And we understand that many conventions are going to be held in Florida. So we are advising our, our members and others that if you go, be cautious of how you operate in the state. That if you have another choice to hold your convention, consider a place outside of Florida. But also, let's, if you have, have to go there, let's support the local community as we prepare to change the political landscape. We didn't end here overnight. It was because of the election, so we have to prepare for the next election so we can get rid of him once and for all. This other, the othering that we have seen, first by Trump, now by him, is not only un-American, is dangerous, and we have to right-size this landscape. I want to ask you uh, your comments on this. The Florida Chamber of Commerce uh, sensing in a statement about the advisory that the NAACP that you all sent out. Um, and here's, here's sort of what it says. Regarding the national group's notice to certain travelers, we have no comment. However... On the economic diversification front, in just the last few years, Florida has moved into the number one spot in the United States for black-owned businesses and number two for Hispanic and number two for women-owned businesses as well. When you hear those numbers, uh, what they are saying is, look, African-Americans and Hispanics are doing quite well here when it comes to running their own businesses and being able to make money here uh, and being able to live decent lives. How do you how do you address that with this new ban? First of all, that's propaganda language. Over the last several years, it wasn't because of anything he did in policy. Florida, by geography, is an attractive place where people would like to go. But he's fighting the largest company in the state with Disney around tourism. They just pulled out a billion dollars. He is minimizing the quality of education by taking away the diversity for children to learn. He has he has sought to cause harm by saying that every citizen could carry guns without permit. Those are not business attractive policies. Those are regressive policies that that that's going to hit a dead end. So you can spend the whatever language you would like to have. The policies that he has put in place are harmful policies to far too many individuals. And I can tell you what Disney has been doing, what we have this call for, it is a trend that's about to, that about to pick up, not slow down. Yeah, he and Disney are in a massive fight um, over that LGBTQ plus law uh, that was put in place, which critics call the don't say gay bill. Uh, I want to ask you about some numbers and just your thoughts on this. In, in 2022, there was a, an exit poll in Florida that showed that 13 percent of exit polls, uh, black voters uh, liked DeSantis 
And then when it came to Latino voters in Florida, they voted for DeSantis as governor, uh, according to CNN's exit poll. So the black voters there voted for DeSantis, 13 percent of them. That's not a small number. What do you say to those folks who voted for him? Now, now, we have to also, with the caveat, say that this happened before some of these uh, bans came into place, like the banning of critical race theory in schools of DEI in colleges and the blocking of the AP course on African-American studies. Um, but curious to your thoughts, 13 percent of the black population is no small feat uh, for a Republican candidate there in Florida. Well, I have never seen an accurate exit poll in 30 years, nor have you, nor have that network, and I'm surprised you will repeat an exit poll number. Exit polls are historically wrong and misleading. Therefore, whatever the number or percentage of individuals who voted for him, that's prior to these bad policies. Now we are living in the reality of an individual who, who's governing. How someone campaign and how they govern are two different realities. Now we are witnessing firsthand how he's governing, and he's governing to a small vocal minority of the community, not the majority interest of Florida, nor is he governing towards the future of Florida, which would not, which will not, not look like the small minority that he's speaking to in this moment. Derek Johnson, you and I don't love the polling, but it is a measure, uh, the best measure that we can often get um, because we can't talk to every single person in the state. But I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you stating um, your, the, your thoughts on why you're putting this advisory in place. I appreciate your time. But that's, it's not about love and hate. The polling, it is an inaccurate measurement that people stop using because it has been so inaccurate over the last 30 years. All right. Thank you so much, Derek. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. The SpaceX rocket heading to the ISS, the International Space Station, is going to dock in just minutes. It's only the second all-private mission to enter the space station ever. What it means for the future of space tourism next. I love this song. Elton John. Three, two, one. Engines full power. And lift off Falcon 9. Go Axiom. Copy one alpha. There you go. We have liftoff. That was the SpaceX rocket blasting off Sunday to the International Space Station. It is only the second all-private mission to the space station. It's now set to dock within the next hour. That'll be pretty great to see. So you're looking at live pictures of the SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule approaching the ISS. And this mission is making history for several reasons, including carrying the first woman from Saudi Arabia to space. To the people around the world, well, the future is very bright. and. I would like you to dream big, believe in yourselves, and believe in humanity. <laughs> Joining us now is retired NASA astronaut Mike oh, yes. Massimino. I love that you waved to the <laughs> wave to our audience this morning. He's done right? that from space as well. <laughs> yeah. Coolest. The coolest background. Really cool it's background. great to see you. you. Just so people know, he has yeah. been to space twice and has completed four spacewalks. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Moonshot, A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. And you've done it. Yeah. You have yeah. done it. Yeah. What is it like to see these private astronauts doing it? I, I think it's, it's actually very gratifying. Uh, this is something that NASA has wanted to do for a long time. I joined NASA in, I was selected as an astronaut in 1996. At the beginning of the space shuttle program, they had hoped before that, 15 years earlier, when the first shuttle first 
began to fly in the early 80s, they had hoped that it would be a commercially viable vehicle. Yeah. That's what NASA has had as its goals for many years. That didn't work out. We had a couple accidents with the space shuttle. We weren't ready for that. But I, now we, we are doing that. This is the second, as you said, second yes. private astronaut mission. There's more to come. So I'm really gratified that uh, these goals that we've had for a long time are, are coming to fruition right now. Um, your friend and fellow astronaut yeah. Peggy Whitson making history uh, as the first woman to command a private yeah. uh, space flight. What do you think about this? Because she's she's done this before, yeah. uh, you know, for the government. Now she's doing this as a, a private yeah, she, astronaut. It, yeah, it's so interesting. She's the kind of the adult supervisor on this one <laughs> because she's an Axiom employee. So the deal they had that Axiom, this company, arranged with NASA a few years ago was to get access to the International Space Station with, un, with new astronauts, with private astronauts. Yeah. They wanted at least one experienced NASA astronaut on board to command. And so that's Peggy, very experienced astronaut, the first woman to command the space station. She was my boss for a while to my astronaut classmate, and it was my boss my last few years at NASA. So they wanted one experienced former NASA astronaut to do that. So she's going there as, as part of her job with Axiom to fly in space with these three other people who are their, fir their first time in space. So that was the arrangement. To get inside the space station and work in there, you need to leave one, one person to kind of supervise. Knows what they're and, doing. And yeah, yeah, make sure <laughs> no one gets into trouble. Yeah, you, exactly. say, you say the word work, which mm -hmm. is why I think you say, look, pri um, private space tourism isn't really the right term for this because this yeah. isn't a quote-unquote joyride, which you know yeah. has been criticized by some. This is, they're doing work. This is, this is different. They've trained for months to do this. I mean, I trained for years. Peggy yeah. and I trained together for years before we could go to space. This is a little bit different, uh, it's not, but it's not just a joyride. It's not an amusement park ride. Uh, it is going to the space station for 10 days of work. They have over 20 projects they're working on, uh, biomedical research, life science research, human adaptability to space, technology demonstrations. A lot of educational outreach is going to be done as well. So they have trained, these four individuals have trained to do work in space and to make a difference and to use the private astronaut mission, the commercial, commercialization of spaceflight to do good research, I, I think, and, and to inspire people. So it's a little bit different. It's yeah. not just a joy ride. It's not really tourism. Yeah, they're doing yeah. something. I, I do want to mention, we have to mention this. You were a first, the first to tweet from space. There you go. I Take mean, that, Armstrong. <laughs> yeah. Walk on the yeah. moon, Walk tweet on the moon from space. space. Hey, look. Yeah. It's all cool for us. It's all way more than we've done in it's, space. It's really well. It's really cool for me too. And it's it's now that I've left NASA, and it's interesting. The crew they they announced to go to the moon. Uh, I guess it was last month. I got yeah. to see them. They were in town in New York, and I was so excited so for cool. them because what we're accomplishing now, sending sending people back to the moon, this, this privatization of space, is things that when I joined NASA. I was hoping to get a chance to see. And even though I've left NASA, now I get to, to enjoy what these other folks are doing. And it's, it's very exciting. I appreciate you covering it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank we you appreciate you coming. Here, My pleasure. Coming here and congrats again on the book. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for plugging that. <laughs> Good appreciate to have it. you. Thank you. It is the hottest ticket in town, costing some eager Swifties tens of thousands of dollars. Ugh. Harry Enton. He probably brought me a ticket, I'm pretty sure, is here with the data on the, and he's dancing, booming Taylor Swift economy. That is not how she dances. At all. At all.
gives voice or talent or moves. But you can still sing it. You know, it's all good. It's a Monday morning. Taylor Swift and her loyal fans shaking off the rain at the sold-out show in Foxborough, Massachusetts over the weekend. It's the biggest show in the country, and Swifties are paying up. In fact, one Massachusetts dad spent ahem twenty-one thousand dollars for his daughter and her friends to see the pop star after his original ticket purchase fell through. Lucky kids. Swift's <laughs> tour is poised to be one of the highest grossing tours of all time. Harry Anton is here with this morning's number. What is the number? Okay, this morning's number is 2.6 million because that is how many people tickets have been sold for Taylor Swift's Errors Tour. And keep in mind, many of those are to out-of-towners. And of course, what do out-of-towners, when you are going to see a Swift concert, also spend money on? Well, the visiting Swifties spend money on food, hotels, merchandise, and transportation. And that is a major jolt to local economies. This is an estimate of how much it is generating for U.S. cities nationwide. We're talking $100 million to billions of dollars. My goodness gracious. Why? Because, for example, they're spending thousands of dollars a night for just one single hotel room. And we're talking about this throughout the entire nation. What a jolt for local economies, not just for Taylor Swift. There's a whole economy following this one person. It's fascinating. I just am wondering how much money is this particular tour going to take in from just the ticket sales alone? Yeah, uh, it's going to be an all-time highest-grossing tour. So this is the highest-grossing tour ever. We have Ed Sheeran's, we have Elton John's, we have YouTube, Taylor Swift errors at about $600 million. And keep in mind, she has actually very few tour dates compared to these other folks, and she has not yet gone international. So this is an incredible amount. And guess what? I think that this is going to make Taylor Swift a billionaire. Why? Because her tours, her errors tour gains her at least $500 million. Her prior net worth was $570 million. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that that gets you <laughs> over the billion-dollar mark, guys. You know what? Wow. If anyone's going to... I think it's awesome. Yeah, she has been, like, writing her own music, yep. fighting for the rights to her music, yep. standing up for what she believes in. Go All Taylor. All things. She's, All the things. She's making out, and so are the cities that are supporting her concerts. Yeah. Harry Anton, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, here's a question for you this morning. Who should get to fly first class? I have one seat in first class and one in coach. The price is the same because your flight was canceled. Oh, well, uh, I'll take the first class. Of course he would. Okay, so that's funny, but this might not be so funny. A reader wrote to the New York Times ethicist with this question. My husband flies first class and puts me in coach. Is that fair? The wife writing her husband justifies flying alone in first class because of the cost and the fact that our kids, ages 12 to 16, uh, might feel alone if I were to travel in first with him and leave them in the rear cabin. I feel that is unfair. Back now with us, Harry Enton, who's shaking his head very quickly. Uh, Also, we've got CNN chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Um, Harry, so you're going to put your wife, your girlfriend or whatever in the back and just take the front seat? Uh, No, I will not do that because I actually want to maintain the relationship that I'm currently in. Uh, This is the type of thing that makes me want to apologize for all men out there because what the heck is this guy doing? And although I'm not a marriage counselor, 
the word divorce comes to mind <laughs> yeah. very quickly. It's like it's Don Draper and his wife is the nanny. I mean, it's just really, really crazy. He said the kids are, what, 12 and, 12 16. and 16. I have a 12-year-old yeah. and a 16-year-old, and I love we love flying together, but sometimes I do get upgraded, right? And yeah. then it's the big question, Same. do we switch off? My husband goes, or then I go. Maybe we put the older kid gets to go. And then every now and then, it'll ask me if I want to be upgraded, and I say no, because yeah, I don't want to be together. I don't want to mess up the, the reservation, and I want to be together. I mean, it's fun to, to travel together, so... I think this is a terrible, terrible sign for this woman. And why does he just travel with his family and coach? I, I really don't get it. I have to say, I know she's being very quiet, and she's just like, you know what? I'm not going to touch this. But I have to I say, pitched this like story. you did. Pitch this story. <laughs> My husband <laughs> sent it to me. I don't know why he sent it to me. Maybe he was trying to show you what a nice guy. There it is. is. Probably. You know what I mean? I, I don't think I wouldn't go as far as divorce. That is just out. No, we can work things out. Um, but I have had the situation where right. you get upgraded. Right. So I would send alcohol or anything right. I could back, but I have switched places. I yeah, have switched I have, places. I have but he didn't too. ask He did too. not ask. That would, I, Your I'd hobby be is too nice. I will say one thing. With the, with the age of my kids, your kids are younger than mine, but don't, don't let them go to first class by themselves. You'll never put them in coach again, right? So you always <laughs> no, want to make sure to keep the whole family back in coach so people don't have too high of expectations, you know? Good advice. Like, I'm afraid of what are going to do. Thank, Thank you so much, Christina. That was fun. All right, now to this. Another bit of fun news this morning. Our chief investigative correspondent, mom, and now law school graduate, a big congratulations to our very own Pamela Brown. Woo who graduated from George Washington University with her master's in law studies this weekend. She says, I've learned many lessons going back to school, but most of all, I've learned to listen to those little voices pushing me to seek more out of life. So Pam, while at school, has been a pivotal member of CNN in general, and especially the investigative unit, and before that, as senior Washington correspondent, all while raising oh, two kids. <laughs> Here's what she told Forbes magazine last year. As you watch her accept her there diploma, she is folks, with, the kiddos. with her kiddos. Let's pull that video back up. She said, My son really likes that he goes to school with his backpack, and mommy goes to school with her backpack. <laughs> and it's actually been a fun thing to share with my kids that mom's doing the same thing, and it's helped encourage them to get ready for school, knowing that after I take them to school, I'm going to school too. Pamela, we are so proud of you and in awe of you. I'm proud to work for a company that supports people doing that. Where too. does she find the time, though? I need to talk to her about it. I don't know. <laughs> no, I probably idea. lack of sleep. <laughs> All right. Talk about a Cinderella story. No, not just Pam's. Uh, meet the man who went from selling golf lessons at a public course in California to sinking a hole in one at yesterday's PGA Championship. Boom. Michael Block is here with us next. There he is. <laughs> Tin, tin Cup. That is the real thing, a real-life version of the movie Tin Cup. An incredible moment at yesterday's PGA Championship in Rochester, New York. Michael Block acing the 15th hole and capturing America's heart. Block is a 46-year-old club pro who normally teaches golf for a living at a public course in California, but yesterday he was paired up with Roy McIlroy, one of the game's best, and Block stole the show, finishing one over par, good enough for 15th overall, and an automatic invitation to next year's tournament. 
It's it's amazing. Uh, I'm living a dream. I'm making sure that I enjoy this moment. I've learned that after the my 46 years of life, that uh, it's not going to get better than this. There's no way, no chance in hell. So uh, I'm going to enjoy this and thank you. Choking up there. It's so cute. Rightly Michael so. Block, Mr. Tin Cup himself, joins us now live. Michael, um, the emotion in your voice was incredible when you hit that shot. Did you have any idea that like, yeah, I just nailed this one? <laughs> I hit it good, but I didn't see it go in. And uh, Rory stops all of a sudden, he turns around, he's got his <laughs> arms open and he's coming <laughs> and giving me a hug. And I, I'm, I, it's just, I'm like going, what is going on right now? And uh, he's like, he goes, he goes, it went in the hole. And I'm just like, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me right now <laughs> under these circumstances that it went in the hole. I mean, crazy. What's it like when a dream actually comes true like that? 100%. It's, it is a 10-cup moment, without a doubt. I mean, I am a club pro. Uh, <laughs> I teach golf. I'm the head golf professional at Royal Chico Golf Club in Mission Viejo. And for me to be out here with these guys, Roy McElroy on Sunday, Justin Rose on Saturday, and uh, have the Rochester people out here that are the biggest supporters of golf I've ever seen in my life wow. uh, was absolutely unbelievable, and uh, it was a dream come true. You know, you're one of those guys, you know, a lot of guys are like, yeah, yeah, out in the course of their buddies are like, I could play in the PGA. I'm, I'm good enough. I can make it. But you actually did. You actually did. Can you tell us about the phone call that you got after this inviting you to play? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sitting there enjoying a moment with my, my family and friends afterwards. And I get a, a phone call from Michael, the tournament director at the Charles Schwab Challenge. So I'm head to Fort Worth this afternoon uh, to play at Colonial the rest of the week. And so uh, I, I won't be back at work until next week. So I need to cancel a couple lessons. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's a good thing. I think they understand why. I think they understand why I can't, I can't teach them tomorrow. Yeah. I, I think they're going to understand. Hey, speaking of lessons, so we understand that you charge 150 bucks an hour for lessons. I hope your students locked in that rate with you because I think you can charge a lot more now. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I have a feeling my wife's going to make me charge more. So, uh, yeah, no, it's been, uh, it's been great. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I kind of feel bad about charging more for a golf lesson. I, I'm pretty good with Aww. 150 an hour, no matter what. I, that, that is so The sweet. embrace, I don't know if we can play it, but the embrace of your wife embracing you after sweet. this was like pure joy. <laughs> She almost killed me. Yeah, she cho she almost choked me out on that one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. She was very emotional, as as I was too. Uh, she hadn't seen me cry outside of one other time in my life until this week, and I woke I literally woke up on my bed crying this morning. It was oh, pretty crazy. That is oh. so beautiful. Now you're crying with joy. What are you gonna do with that golf ball? Did you get to keep it? Are you gonna enshrine it in some way? <laughs> I don't know yet. Yeah, it's still sitting in my golf bag. I don't even know where my golf bag is. It's been such a whirlwind <laughs> ever since that moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I, I can't wait just to be on the plane and sit back and relax and, and be able to soak it in and be able to respond to all of my friends uh, that have wished me, uh, you, know, you know, what I've done. I mean, it's been, it's been insane. And I can't wait just to respond to everybody and tell them thank you for all the support. Aww. Hey, some curious folks in the control room want to know what your bar tab was last night after that hole-in-one. <laughs> well, as far as I know, it was all hosted. By, so, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, 
I definitely had I definitely had a couple, and I was lucky enough that Brooksy uh, went away because I knew Brooksy was going to put it all in my tab for sure. So uh, <laughs> it was it was a good moment, and uh, I was I was I was lucky enough to have have Brooks Kepka win uh, too, and he's Aww. he's such a great guy, and everyone was uh, the whole week. Love these wow. moments, cherish it. We're really happy. Congratulations, for you. that's amazing. All right, we're going to head it over to, we we appreciate you coming on. Kate Baldwin and John Berman, my buddies, are going to take it away. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.